We have uh, the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA Law, the founder of the Volat Conspiracy, which is hosted on Reason. Uh, you also clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor and Judge Kaczynski. Uh, and uh, <laughs> probably most uh, notably to me, you were also my constitutional law uh, professor at UCLA Law. Uh, Eugene Volek, thank you for joining us on uh, the podcast. Uh, very much my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It seems in some way, I mean, in almost every uh, profession that I know of, the main gripe seems to be clients. And it seems to me that there's a certain kind of great benefit to at least the way you practice uh, being a law professor of, oh, this is interesting. Let me be my own client and delve into this and follow kind of the rabbit hole uh, as opposed to, you know, a lawyer who has to wait or for a client to come or a judge, obviously, you know, has to wait for uh, litigants to come before him. It seems like you get to be both proactive and also proactive about your own interests as a law professor, which is uh, a uniquely interesting profession in, in some ways. It's a spectacularly interesting profession. You're right, because it's not driven by the clients. It's being an academic is the only field in which you can study whatever you want to study and write whatever you think is right. Now, if you're a judge, you can, in fact, you should write what you think is right based on the law about something, but you can't control what cases come to you. Whereas here, as a law professor, you can say, I just have gotten interested in uh, fake libel takedown orders, and that's what I'll write about. And I don't have to, I don't have to find a client who'll pay me to do this. <laughs> I have already found the taxpayers in California and my students who do that, you know, maybe Maybe they they shouldn't. Maybe we should have a different system where there aren't professors who are paid all this money to research uh, with a relatively modest teaching load. Uh, but but it's there, and I'm very fortunate to, uh, to, to, to be able to do this. Now, of course, the downside is you get this fear that nothing you do really matters that much, right? We all have that fear. And <laughs> well, right, but if you're a judge, you see it matters. If you're a lawyer, you can actually leads to tangible results. As a law professor, the results are not that tangible. You write these articles and sometimes you see them cited, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you see courts cited, sometimes you don't. Uh, so so that, that's, that's the downside. But, uh, uh, but it interests me. It keeps me excited. It keeps me wanting every day to go and do some work. Uh, and that, that's a great thing, great thing to have happen. How many well, projects a day are you working on? So, so let me tell you about today. Sure. Yeah, please. I was on a, a call about a consulting project I'm doing through the Mayor Brown firm. Very interesting, very interesting issue. Um, I uh, was editing the religion clauses material in my Seventh Amendment, uh, um, uh, Seventh Amendment, excuse me, the Seventh Edition of my First Amendment uh, uh, textbook. Um, uh, I did not teach because the semester is over. Uh, but I am going to uh, make a few changes for a brief from the Amicus Brief Clinic. Today, I was reading a Supreme Court case and writing up something for another blog. Uh, they wanted me to, to write a brief snippet about it. I'll probably also uh, copy it onto my blog. I didn't blog anything today, but I posted several blog posts in the wide. I haven't talked about any of my scholarship uh, and law review articles, uh, uh, but there's one that... Uh, uh, is in production of one law review there. I don't want to cut you off, but I do want to ask a question about the law okay. review, uh, review article about uh, forgeries. Uh, yes, the one, that one you of them. Sent me. Right. So one of them is, in fact, about about uh, uh, forged court orders. That's the article based on this research I've been doing since uh, 
fall of 2006. It's coming out of the Utah Law Review. I think it's fascinating how you actually just kind of found out about it right. very randomly, and it turns into this large right. project. Although yeah. it's so much in one's career, things can be random, but at the same time, they stem from, let's say, a network of contacts that one has built. Um, so what happened was one of my earliest uh, oral arguments was in the Georgia Supreme Court. And it was as amicus in support of a guy named Matthew Chan, who ran a website that basically uh, was uh, uh, trying to speak out against what they saw as extortion of copyright demand letters. Uh, when people said, oh, you've infringed my copyright, pay me $10,000 or I'll sue you and it'll cost you a lot more than $10,000 to defend yourself. And then a couple of years later, this uh, guy, Matthew Chan is his name, as I think I mentioned, um, calls me up and says, Strange thing happened to me. You remember, he's in Georgia. He's, uh, he says, I went to this uh, uh, dentist. Uh, uh, As most good stories start. <laughs> right. I went exactly. I went to this dentist in Atlanta. I thought I thought he did a bad job. So I posted a review on Yelp saying I thought he did a bad job. And I looked at it, you know. What was the review kind of like one of those crazy reviews? or It was a, it was a negative review, but perfectly calm and... And, uh, and actually maybe made it more negative because it came across as credible. Um, so just the kind of thing that one expects to find on Yelp. And then I get an email, he says, from Yelp uh, uh, telling me they're going to take down my review because of this court order that had found it to be libelous. And I said, what court order? I was never involved in any court case. He said, oh, no, no, here's the order. And there was this lawsuit supposedly by the dentist, although the dentist later said that he never authorized it, supposedly against Chan, except against... A Matthew Chan who supposedly lives in Baltimore, not where this Matthew Chan lives or where the dentist lives, um, and supposedly that Matthew Chan said, yes, I wrote this and I, and I agree that it's libelous. If there was a Matthew Chan, it was a completely different Matthew Chan. We ultimately came to believe there was no Matthew Chan. We ultimately came to believe that there was a um, uh, reputation management company that was selling these takedown services where people said, oh, uh, we'll pay you thousands of dollars to... To, to have this stuff taken down. And the way they did that, and we found 25 cases that shared the same boilerplate that we thought were connected to this company. Um, the way they, uh, the way they uh, uh, would do this is they would file a lawsuit, a real lawsuit in a court, but supposedly, or supposed plaintiff sues supposed defendant. The defendant stipulates to this being, to the uh, statements being libelous and stipulates an injunction. They get this injunction, but really it's the reputation management company that's running both sides. They're submitting things on behalf of the plaintiff. And again, sometimes the plaintiff says, I never authorized this, against the defendant. And the defendant, uh, there is no defendant. It's just them submitting something where they, they come up with this fake defendant. What happened to them? What's the end of the story? Ultimately, Paul Allen Levy from um, uh, Public Citizen uh, a very prominent uh, consumer side uh, public interest uh, uh, organization uh, got uh, uh, this whole thing exposed in a federal district court case where the judge had approved one of these things and said, "Oh, wait a minute! Looks like I was uh, I was duped here," and actually got a seventy thousand um, uh, dollar um, sanction in- issued against the reputation management company. And then I started looking more, and I realized this is just one of many scams. There were some in which the signatures, there were real defendants, their signatures were notarized, but they were all notarized in California, even though all of the cases were filed in Texas. So that's very odd. 
And it turned out, Texas Attorney General's office looked into this, it turned out that this company was basically paying people to claim, uh, to sign these documents saying, yes, I uh, um, uh, wrote this review or posted this item and it's libelous, even though they had nothing to do with it. And then I found, at this point, basically uh, almost 90 uh, outright forged court orders uh, where somebody just made up something that looked like a court order, maybe based on some other, some existing court order. And uh, a couple of these cases have actually led to criminal prosecutions. Uh, so it's this weird thing you never think about when you go to law school. Well, what about forgeries? Well, what about fake cases? You know, we read about all these real cases. What about fake cases? And I'll direct anybody who uh, is interested in that to uh, look out for your law review article in the Utah Law Review. Um, and now I kind of wanted to transition into First Amendment law and uh, coronavirus. What kind of is drawing your interest, you know, uh, in, in First Amendment law and just banning church gatherings or stay-at-home orders, uh, you know, abortions for elective surgery or abortion? So kind of what's what's on your mind on First Amendment issues? Well, so I'm interested in a lot of First Amendment issues. On this whole um, uh, coronavirus stuff, uh, I'm actually interested in looking at the big picture, at the free speech side, at the religious freedom side, at the abortion rights side, at the gun rights side, because, as is often the case, if you look to, to compare how different rights are treated, you get some interesting insights. So let's take an example just on the First Amendment side. We hear about attempts to get churches, uh, uh, and sometimes it's a phrase as a free exercise clause article. But as we know, um, free exercise of religion, um, uh, the Supreme Court held in the Employment Division versus Smith case back in 1990, that that... Uh, does not give religious institutions exemptions from generally applicable laws. So if there's a general shutdown order that shuts down churches, shuts down social clubs, shuts down concerts, shuts down movie theaters, shuts down political rallies, then that's not a free exercise clause problem. Maybe a problem under some state religious freedom restoration act or state religious freedom constitutional provisions, but not the free exercise clause. On the other hand, the restriction on religious gatherings, like on other gatherings, does presumably violate the freedom of assembly clause, the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and that's for religious purposes or for political purposes. And that raises uh, pretty clear First Amendment problems. Now, I think on balance, I think that this is the kind of situation where extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures and that uh, restrictions on large gatherings or even modest-sized gatherings uh, in a time of epidemic, are justifiable. How does that relate to abortion rights and gun rights? Maybe you could start with abortion rights. So as we know, some states have said, uh, we're going to uh, forbid non-essential medical procedures, partly because such procedures involve people coming in close contact with each other, which might spread, spread the virus. But on top of that, they use personal protective equipment which there's still something of a shortage. And we want to make sure that that equipment is available for really necessary uh, medical procedures. So it isn't just a ruse to go after abortions, of course, because they do shut down a wide range of medical procedures, plastic surgery, but also other kinds of things that, are, that really are, in a sense, necessary, but not immediately necessary. But it is, they do include abortion, and probably in part because the, the states that do that are ones with uh, there is broad sentiment against abortion more broadly. The question is, is that constitutional? And 
there's been some disagreement among courts, but I think the better view that some courts have recently taken is it is unconstitutional because at least it's unconstitutional as to those women for whom uh, one of these orders, which usually have a time limit, is not just delay, but denial, because a two-week delay may push them over uh, the viability line into a, into a time in the pregnancy when abortion may be illegal or may be quite dangerous. So in that kind of situation where their right is really being denied, and we don't have the situation of mass gathering. Interestingly, similar issues have come up with regard to gun, with regard to gun stores, although unsurprisingly in other states than the ones in which they've come up with regard to abortions. So a lot of stores get closed down, including gun stores, on the theory that they're not essential. And what's the argument that guns are essential? Well, they're not essential in the sense that you don't need a gun in order to eat. But they are essential, like abortions are essential, in order to exercise your constitutional right. If you don't have a gun and you feel you need a gun in case things go bad, fortunately they haven't yet, but who knows, um, uh, then uh, uh, sh shutting down of a gun store, especially in a, in a state uh, like California where private transactions are not legally allowed, um, that means you can't exercise your right to bear arms. And uh, some courts have... Uh, uh, have rejected that argument and the theory it's just the delay for several weeks in California this has happened. Just today in Massachusetts a judge says no, uh, gun stores have to reopen because uh, uh, otherwise it excessively burdens the right to bear arms. Again, not all courts take that view, just like not all courts conclude that abortion uh, rights need to be protected against these, uh, uh, these uh, public health restrictions. Uh, but, uh, uh, but this is certainly being litigated now some very interesting opinions coming. When you kind of think through these issues, what uh, precedent do you think through that is applicable to uh, thinking through what's right in these discussions? Because certainly, I mean, this is uh, unprecedented. And so the legal scholarship, uh, certainly at least case law, can't be that uh, bountiful. Well, so you're right that it's unprecedented in the modern era of, of constitutional rights. Certainly, epidemics are extraordinarily well precedent. It's just that because of advances in, in, uh, in uh, medical care, and in particular in uh, vaccinations, uh, we've been largely spared serious epidemics for literally a century. So in 1905, there was a case that came before the U.S. Supreme Court called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which involved a, uh, uh, um, a law in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that required everybody to be vaccinated because of a smallpox, smallpox outbreak. Uh, Jacobson objected, and the court held, and not unanimously, a 72 vote, held that even though there's a, there is a constitutional right to bodily integrity, not to be subject to a medical procedure against your will, uh, this has to yield to public health. So that's all leading precedent. From 1905, a different era, but still often cited. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. I think the science was at least clear, or at least in hindsight, it doesn't seem like there was a controversy over smallpox being dangerous or what what happens. Whereas now, with so much kind of controversy, especially within this own our own country, about kind of what are the actual health risks, when it is safe, when it's not safe, how do you balance, make those balancing adjustments? Quite right. Uh, that things were more settled then. But at the same time, the court in Jacobson acknowledged that there could be huge disagreements about what's the most effective way of dealing with these things. Among other things, also remember, medical science back then was much less reliable than it is now. 
uh, and the court said, in this kind of situation, we have to defer to the executive branch and to the medical experts they have. This isn't something for, for courts to then have a little mini trial uh, where the judges decide what, what's the, um, the, uh, the, the best way of dealing with this. Uh, so I think Jacobson is still good law when we're talking about basically mass gatherings, when we're talking about travel, when we're talking about, uh, about medical procedures like vaccination. I don't think it quite applies to situations where we've got something like with abortion or with gun purchases where, where, where it's really not a mass gathering. It doesn't involve uh, a huge risk of, of uh, uh, transmission of disease. The risk is, is the kind that we do accept as, as normal and acceptable, it, even with the current shutdowns. There, it seems to me, that's when the argument in favor of protecting the individual right is especially strong. Do you think um, there's a difference in the way courts uh, and jurisprudence evolves and courts uh, view uh, mandating that uh, individuals uh, take inaction versus take inaction? So um, take inaction being you can't leave your house and assuming that, let's say, your basic needs are taken care of, uh, but you're saying, you know, do not exercise, you, you can't go out. Well, I think I think it's complicated. There is something of a tendency to be a little bit more reluctant to command action. So, for example, I do think everybody agrees that at the very least there's a serious problem with requiring you to get a vaccine or to take certain medicines or or various other such things. Uh, it's not categorically unconstitutional to have such requirements, but the thought is that's a pretty serious imposition on you to have to stick things into your own body. Let's say there is a vaccine. Uh, we start in the same kind of midst of, if, you know, you can't go outside or you're risking affecting people. Can, can the government uh, constitutionally require people to be vaccinated in order to kind of resume daily life? Or is that unconstitutional? Right. Yes, I think, I think it can. Uh, and Jacobson would be the precedent for that. Again, one could try to distinguish that. Say, you know, it's one thing when you're talking about a vaccine against uh, smallpox with, again, the 25 to 35% fatality rate. Another thing when you're talking about a vaccine against coronavirus. Um, uh, and in fact, as a practical matter, what we see is since then, it's been rare to have requirements that people take vaccines. The general thought was, excuse me, by requirements, I mean, like, the law says you must or else you'll go to jail. Instead, there have been requirements that your child needs to be vaccinated in order to be sent to a school, which maybe is a practical matter requirement, but it's at least they're trying to do this a little bit less coercively. So as a practical matter, between the requirements that you be vaccinated in order to go to school uh, and the uh, the broad popularity of vaccines and the fact that not everybody has to be vaccinated in order to maintain this herd immunity that we hear about. Um, uh, between that, I think it's going to be unlikely that there'll be a rule that says you must be vaccinated, period, or even you must be vaccinated in order to have a particular job. But I do think a lot of employers may require you to be vaccinated as a condition of returning to work, including government employers, and schools and colleges might as well. But if somebody says that's against my, you know, religious beliefs, can that run up against a free exercise of religion uh, argument? Well, uh, the answer is generally no, at least under the federal free exercise clause, because uh, generally applicable law that doesn't single out religion, that applies to everybody regardless of religious beliefs, uh, can be applied to religious objectors as well. 
Um, some states, of course, have these religious freedom restoration acts and even state constitutional provisions that have been read as mandating religious exemptions. So then a court would have to say, oh, well, there's a presumptive right to the exemption. Is the right rebutted by there being this compelling interest in mandating um, immunization? I'm inclined to say that a court probably would say, yes, it is. So notwithstanding these religious freedom restoration acts, they could still require you to be vaccinated or have your children vaccinated before going to school. But there at least would be a little bit more grounds for litigation. It's been uh, wonderful to talk to you. Um, best of luck, stay safe, and thank you again. Um, very much my pleasure. Thank you. Let me know how I can be of help in the future.